OneHunt was created to power all workers, and our guest today is someone who knows that if we want to power workers, we need to empower students first. We need to start early. At Compete 2020, we sat down with Shavar Jeffries. Shavar is an accomplished civil rights attorney, law firm partner, and president of the national political organization Democrats for Education Reform. They work to expand educational policies that will empower students from every background to fulfill their full potential, especially low-income students and students of color. Shavar has been a leader in law, policy, education, and social justice for over 20 years, from right here in Newark. Previously served as president of the advisory board for Newark Public Schools and as New Jersey's assistant state attorney general, who's even a candidate for mayor of Newark in 2014. Shavar still lives in the South Ward of Newark, where he grew up, is one of our community's great leaders, has a truly amazing life story, but I'm going to let him tell you that himself. So today's episode is one of my favorites from Compete 2020. Shavar is a friend, inspiration to many New Jerseyans. We're really excited to share this Compete 2020 session with everybody today. So let's bring it in and get started. You know, to kick it off, Shavar, what got you into uh, the line of work you're in, obviously across policy and, and, and the legal profession? What made you What made you do it? Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. Excited to have this conversation. Appreciate all the work you do. Um, what got me into this work, and when I say this work, it's really you know, work at the kind of intersection of you know civil rights, racial injustice, economic opportunity, educational opportunity, is really connected to kind of my upbringing. You know, I'm from Newark, uh, from the South Ward of Newark. Uh, love the city very much. Um, you know, amazing people in the city, brilliant people, talented people. And you know, as I was growing up. Uh, you know, I didn't really have a sense of college. I didn't really have a sense of kind of life beyond Newark. Um, and, you know, my grandmother was a public school teacher. She really kind of really was um, insistent that education opportunity was kind of the key to, you know, kind of me fulfilling my potential. And um, even though she was a public school teacher at Newark Public Schools, she felt because of the politics in the system, you know, some of the, frankly, bureaucracy in the system, the inefficiency, and the fact that the system at that point in the um, 70s and the 80s was significantly underfunded, was severely underfunded. So all of those issues combined, she just felt that the public school system in just wasn't aligned with the potential I had inside of me or frankly, a lot of the potential of the kids in the, in the system generally. So long story short, in 1987, a philanthropist, uh, the great Ray Chambers, uh, who I love, is really a hero. Um, to this world, frankly. I mean, the work he's done with the UN and the work he's done not only in Newark, but around the world. Um, he created a scholarship program for about 15 kids in Newark to get college, to get high scholarships to go to college prep, private high school. So I was one of those kids and I just saw up close how um, the type of educational opportunity I had and the rigor and the expectations. So the expectations at Seton Hall Prep, which, which is where I went to high school, was that every, every student is gonna go to college. Um, and every student was going to go to college and be the best that they could be, you know, not just for themselves, but so that they could be a servant in this world. And I just saw, you know, day by day that I was on a different trajectory because the opportunity I had available to me and I saw how the kids in my neighborhood didn't have those same opportunities. And so they weren't thinking the same way I was about what college and beyond could mean. Um, and uh, so long story short, from there, I'd be the first person to go to college, let alone law school. And I just decided to become a civil rights attorney because I want to use these skills that I had been given. And that of course I had to work very hard to obtain as well uh, to make sure that other young people in my city had similar opportunities uh, to make sure some of the inequities and the kind of opportunity gap uh, that people in cities like Newark face, 
um, that they were hopefully remediated so that you know every American child can have the same opportunity to fulfill their potential. So that's kind of what got me into this work. From your perspective, I guess, how do you define future of work or how do you think about it? Yeah, I think about it in, in a few ways. One, you know, I'm very um, aware of the fact that you know labor market is undergoing many transformations right now. Um, you know, and many of these transformations have been, uh, you know, evolving over over many years, a couple decades. I mean, obviously, city like North. Again, I love North. Still live here. You know, we used to be a strong manufacturing base uh, in the in the '60s, '70s. You know, a lot of those jobs left uh, the city into the '80s and '90s. Um, some of those went overseas. Um, you know, uh, you know, we're very much into, and obviously, technology is really disrupting the labor market. Um, we're moving much more into a services uh, economy. Uh, there's obviously a lot of conversation about technology going to the next level where a lot of you know, potential blue collar jobs um, and kind of remote activity, uh, rote, excuse me, activity, repetitive type jobs could be um, replaced by technology um, over time. And so for me, what it really means is making sure that wherever the labor market is going uh, in this next generation, uh, that we're able to equip everyday Americans with the skills that they need in order to obtain good jobs where they can put food on the table and take care of their families. Uh, it means for me making sure that we rethink um, not only K-12 and higher education, but frankly, continuous learning. Uh, because the labor market is changing at a very fast rate, the jobs that exist today may not be the jobs that exist, uh, forget five years from now, they may not be the jobs that exist a year from now, uh, maybe a few months from now. Um, and so. So it also means for me, we have to have a space where um, adults can receive ongoing continuous learning at an affordable uh, rate, if not free and subsidized by, you know, by uh, the public sector, uh, so that as the labor market changes, people can obtain the skills they need to be competitive as the labor market transforms. Uh, right now, I just think there's a lot of gaps. I mean, there's a lot of gaps between what, um, you know, what high paying jobs are looking for in terms of skills and competencies and types of skills that many Americans have. We see oftentimes foreign workers are coming in to fill some of those jobs. We see in our political conversation, this plays out, right? I mean, you have many middle-aged people, particularly in all parts of the country. You have people in the cities, you have people in uh, the Midwest, in the Rust Belt, um, you know, where you know, a lot of those manufacturing jobs just aren't there and people are afraid, right? People are afraid about how they're gonna take care of their families. Uh, we see opioid use up in the in the Midwest and in the Southwest. We see in our cities. We see all types, you know, heroin and other types of use up because there's such a despair among many folks. Uh, the pandemic is only making this worse. So I really think it's essential that our public se sector steps up in a nonpartisan, fact-based way uh, to make sure that there's deep conversations between government and the private sector, where jobs going, where good-paying jobs going today and into the future. And then we got to make sure we have a public sector vision that enables people to obtain the skills that they need in order to fulfill those jobs. Um, my fear is too much of the public conversation, very much scapegoating. So rather a kind of fact-based, data-based conversation about the labor market and where um, you know, service sector and technology sectors and frankly, just other high paying jobs are going. We get the blame game. Immigrants are taking my job or this one is taking my job and all of that. And that's really just absurd. And that's the kind of politics of division that can keep people distracted from the fact that the labor market is undergoing you know, dramatic transformations, and we're going to need we're going to need a kind of evidence-based, calm, objective conversation and set of policies so that we can prepare Americans to, to deal with that economy. Well, we have a lot of talent leaders that are going to be that are attending and watching. They they might be a job title like 
head of learning and development or head of human resources, head of diversity and inclusion or head of, uh, of, of talent. These roles are responsible for recruiting, onboarding, training and developing, developing folks. What, and I found that like sometimes uh, the, con the conversation around what's happening in education or you just mentioned a bunch of things that are happening in our communities. What, 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 what would you say to that role inside of an organization, something that they need to know about uh, the state of education as they think about developing and, power, and, and tapping into their talent? Yeah, I would really encourage people who are in talent roles uh, to not only think about what I think many, I think already are focused on, which is, um, you know, how to support the kind of internal HR operations, you know, succession planning, um, uh, professional development for internal staff, obviously working through with management and with um, subordinates, uh, personnel issues that arise in the workplace, but also to be very um, intentional about engaging with the public sector, um, engaging with the university community, engaging with the community colleges um, in the community where these businesses either are located or where they're pulling talent from or where they're selling services, where the customers are. Um, and really being in deep conversation uh, with those actors in terms of what is it that um, the company needs today to fulfill to fill roles that already exist, and where is the company going, right? What types of skills going forward is the company like going to project that it's going to need? And we understand, you know, some you don't know what you don't know. Uh, things can change, but but many companies do know some things already. So I think it's very important for people-based folks to really be involved in the external conversation around how do we equip uh, future workers with the skills and competencies they need. So as those jobs become available, employers have a ready pool of talent, ideally from the same communities, either where the company is selling its goods and services or where its headquarters are located, so that you kind of get that integration with, with your community and you frankly get the flywheel, right? Obviously, to the extent a company can find great talent down the road, that's going to make that company more successful. They're going to be able to make more money. And then you, of course, get the double net if you're putting the dollars in the pocket of workers in the communities or, or workers from the communities from which your service, your, your customers are located, you get that kind of multiplier effect. If we're serious about future of work, what are the, what's our line of questions that, that we should be seeking the answers to? Yeah, I really think is, is essential. I mean, obviously, there's a set of questions that different businesses will have around you know, the regulatory environment for their business um, and obviously making sure, I mean, obviously the government has a critical role to make sure that, that the, the uh, you know, that the, that the uh, private sector and that the markets work uh, in a reasonable way and aren't predatory, but obviously at the same time, you know, entrepreneurs and innovators need room to innovate. So there's a set of conversation that different businesses will have, but on the, on the, on the labor market side, I really think it's essential um, for anyone who cares about the future work and the future ability of Americans to be able to have gainful employment, to have the conversation around what is the post-secondary vision that we ought to have as a country, or if you're looking at state candidates or local candidates in your state or in your local community, uh, around preparing um, our residents for the next generation of work, preparing our residents for the future work, right? What are those skills we need? We spend a lot of money in this country on post-secondary education at the community college level, at the four-year college and university level, there's likely, um, there seems to be some bipartisan consensus around making college, um, whether it's community or four year and other and career technical uh, uh, training post high school free or, or dramatically more affordable. So there's gonna be a lot more money probably coming from the federal government to make these programs more affordable. Um, 
but we have to demand that not only is the money there, um, and that's obviously an important piece, but that the right vision and execution is there too. Right? We have to have you know, integrated, organic conversation between um, companies in terms of what they need and being very clear about that. And then the, the public sector in terms of matching and aligning those investments where the jobs are going. I tend to think public-private partnerships are the best way to go. I mean, I think the government is very effective as a funder um, and is reasonably effective in terms of demanding results uh, for those investments. Sometimes there can be challenges when the government is the um, uh, sets up its own agency to implement, to be frank. I mean, there's a lot um, to be desired oftentimes with some of the ways in which some of our one-stop job training programs that are run by uh, you know, local or county government uh, some people may have a different view. In my experience, they tend not to be that effective. So I tend to like to see public-private partnerships where we can have, right? We can have the job creators of tomorrow, right? Where uh, They can create apprenticeship programs. Maybe the government can fund that. And so as opposed to the government agency actually uh, running the service. So I would say those questions around what is your vision to prepare Americans for the future of work, right? What is your vision for how does the country invest in those training programs so that Americans are ready? Because what we are seeing, um, I would argue, um, on one hand, we see one party which tends to focus a lot on putting a lot of money uh, to make uh, training free which I, or, or very affordable, which I think is a good, good, a good conversation, but frankly, less on accountability around results because we not only want the money spent, it has to work and it has to be, it has to be invested wisely nor do I oftentimes hear a uh, conversation from that side around how do we actually deliver in a way that actually ensures that Americans not only get the training, but then they get the job placement. Um, and then sometime on the other side, we, we, we hear too much, frankly, of a zero-sum conversation. So rather than a fact-based, honest conversation about how technology is disrupting the labor market, how a lot of the jobs of yesterday may not exist tomorrow. I mean, that truck driving job may not be here um, 10 years from now, may not be here five years. Um, you know, from that. Many of those jobs and manufacturing plants, to the extent some still exist, may not be here. And it's not because an immigrant or somebody of another racial category is taking some from you, because the whole labor market is changing. So let's get you ready for that, right? So, so that can be maybe a harder conversation, but it's the truthful conversation. So we need a truthful, honest conversation. We got to get away from the zero sum, one group against another, because frankly, if you're a working person or a working poor person, you have so much more in common with everybody else who's a working person than any of these other categories that people are always putting in folks' face. Uh, so I would encourage people to focus on the facts of where's the labor market going? How do we get Americans ready for it? How do we hold, provide, how do we hold government investments accountable to make sure people actually be in place and are in jobs where they can put food on the table and take care of their family? I was, uh, I was, I was watching uh, Representative John Lewis's uh, procession today uh, in DC and uh, I want to I want to ask you this, given your experience, you know, like the the, con, the phrase "good trouble." What kind of good trouble should should we be getting in if if we're leaders that are trying to create a more uh, inclusive, uh, more equitable workforce? What are the things that you would say to leaders out there? I would say, and that's a great you know, of course, John Lewis is such a great model, and people should remember. Um, he was first uh, arrested and sent to prison because he just wanted to use a bathroom uh, uh, at a bus stop in Jackson, Mississippi that was for white people. So he just wanted to pee, right? And just peeing in, the ba in a certain type of bathroom uh, was subversive, uh, you know, 56 years ago, not even that long ago, 
right? This is, you know, this is the early uh, 1960s. And then, of course, um, he was most famous for um, being, on, being beaten uh, brutally uh, for simply walking across a bridge saying Black people should be able to vote <laughs> in the South, right? And so, um, which I would argue is just the fundamentals, right? To be able to actually use a public restroom um, and not be discriminated against because of the color of your skin or to actually be able to cast a ballot in the country that um, claims, you know, the, to be uh, the most successful democracy in the world. And so what I, what I think that means for us today when it comes to inclusion is any of us in positions of authority um, in, uh, who are hiring people, who are purchasing goods and services uh, from, uh, from vendors, uh, you got to have a diverse workforce. Right, and and if you don't, it's probably a reflection of implicit bias, right? I think most human beings um, are good people and want to do the right thing. Um, I, I I don't. There are some who are just explicitly and consciously um, biased against people of different races. I think more often than not, it's more of the, impl the implicit unconscious bias, and there's a lot of research that speaks to that. And I just deals with the fact that as Americans, we we grow up in a culture in which these biases are just there. They're just baked in, right? I mean, the, the reason why, um, not even 60 years ago, um, it was so problematic for John Lewis to use a restroom that wasn't um, designated for him was because, of course, the whole cultural idea was these Black people aren't human beings, right? That was the whole point. That was the point for slavery, right? They're not human beings, so they can be enslaved. That was a point for uh, racial apartheid and segregation, Jim Crow, up until literally 1970. I mean, this was legal in this country until... Uh, Fair Housing Act of 1968. Um, it was because these are different types of people. So when you have that just kind of in the groundwater, um, none of us should feel you're going to have these biases. Black people have them, all types of people have them. Like, you know, sometimes people get very defensive. It's just in the kind of groundwater, right? I mean, I'm an honors grad of Duke University, academic scholarship. When I was walking around campus, people never thought I had an academic scholarship. I can't count how many times, hey, man, what do you play? right? Because it's just images in our culture about who should be doing what. And so the point is, if we want to be inclusive, um, we first have to do the work of anti-racism within ourselves and within our organizations. Um, there's all types of tremendous consultants who can help organizations with that. Um, and then as we're doing that work, you just have to look at who are you hiring? Who are you hiring in positions of power and authority? Where are you buying your goods and services from, right? So it's not just who you hire, but who are your vendor relationships? Who are your lawyers? Who are your accountants um, who provide your professional services? And if you're looking around and you're not seeing equity in that, you probably got some work to do um, in terms of in terms of anti-racism. Uh, because what will happen is um, when you don't do the work, it can be easily rationalized and say, well, I can't find people, um, which just they're there. You just can't, people just can't see them oftentimes because these biases, uh, you know, will, will get in the way. And then the last thing I'll say about it, the great thing is when you do the work, you're actually going to be a better organization, right? You're going to, your work is going to be better, right? So it's not, you know, I mean, I, I would argue on one hand, it's the right thing to do. Uh, but maybe even more importantly, you're just going to be better, right? You're just going to be better. My grandfather used to always tell me the story. My grandfather played in the Negro League, and um, you know, always tell me the story about how Branch Rookie came and saw Josh Gibson and Jackie Robinson. Because at that point, people people may or may not remember. At that point, the thought was, well, these black people just aren't smart and strategic enough to play baseball as a high level, right? So that was the idea, right? They just can't do it, right? Which again is unsurprising when you have the the racial history of who black people were. And um, of course, you know, Branch Rickey brought in Jackie, um, in part, not really because he was trying to be some bold person. He's like, I want to go win games. And this, and, I'm, and this kid, Jackie Robinson, is one of the best players I saw. And of course, Jackie quickly comes in the league, becomes MVP, Dodgers win championship. 
And so, so part of it is, you know, I don't even make the appeals in terms of some ethical claim, although I think that's there. It's like, you want to win, there's all this talent, right, out there. And I do think sports is an interesting space because sports, it's so, uh, it, a lot of bias can play out there, no question. But at a certain point, uh, it can be just so obvious how good people are that it's hard for the biases to, to deny, you know, greatness, although, you know, they, they still play a role. Um, and it's like anything else, right? If you only recruit from the state of New Jersey, where I'm from, you'll get certain talent. You recruit from the country, you'll get more talent. You recruit from the world, you get even more. And if you got, you know, 35% of the population between, in terms of people of color that you're not recruiting from, you're just going to be worse off. So you got to decide, do you want to be the best or do you want to be less than the best? What is your hope for the future of work? That's a great question. Yeah, my real hope is that um, the future of work, um, of course, supports, you know, transformational innovations um, in our world uh, that enable people to live better lives, uh, whether it's transformations in healthcare that now that allow people to live longer, whether it's other types of interventions that just improve the quality of life of human beings, right? So one, I just hope work is connected to just a better quality of life and better living for human beings, right? Uh, so that's number one. Um, so it's beyond just, you know, owners of companies making money and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but it's also that what we do um, in the labor market and what companies do um, and what employers do actually makes our lives better. And then secondly, that the future of work happens in a way that the average human being in this world uh, can find work that's fulfilling for that person. And that enables that person to carve out, you know, a quality life as that person would define it. And for me, at minimum, be able to purchase the fundamental goods and services that I believe human beings should be entitled to. Some shelter, the ability to access healthcare when they're sick. Although I also think that, you know, a lot of arguments about how that you shouldn't have to purchase that. That should just be a guarantee. Um, you know, the ability to, you know, uh, put some food on the table for your family, um, be able to have some recreational ability to just enjoy. So really for me, that work is connected to making people's lives better and that everyday human beings can find work that's fulfilling and, you know, economically rewarding for that, for that person. Shavar, I mean, this has been, I took a page of notes here, man. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing your points of view with, with, with us today. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This year, organizations across the country took steps to make their workplaces more diverse and more equitable. We heard from clients across every vertical who wanted to strengthen their DNI content, make their leadership more diverse, or hire a chief diversity officer to help their organization become more equitable at every level. But one thing Shavar said that I think every organization needs to realize is that if we want to be inclusive, we first have to do the work of anti-racism within ourselves and within our organizations. We've all had conversations with people that start from a point of, well, this can't be a problem in our organization because we're not biased, or people that say we're not a racist. And Shavar does a great job explaining why unconscious biases exist in all of us. If we want to be anti-racist, we want to build anti-racist organizations, We've got to step up and recognize our biases and work to make. That's why I want to create hundreds of games that are now available in the shop. Uh, this is our interactive game marketplace. It has content ranging across 16 different skill areas, most importantly on diversity and inclusion. These are some of our most important, meaningful games, and we're always coming up with new ways to use our platform and content to help workers and companies become more anti-racist. Because like Shavar said, when you do the work, 
you're actually going to be a better organization. Your work is going to be better. Yes, it's the right thing to do, but you're also going to be better. So do the work and make good trouble. And we'll see you next week for another great episode of Bring It In. Now, back to work.